Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So we're in a, just a short two-part series where we're talking about Jesus as one of the most inspiring figures in all of human history, not just among Christians, but among many religions, even among many atheists. And the question is why? Why is that true? And it's simply this, I think, because the stories and teachings of Jesus show how relentlessly he reached across all boundaries to love, to forgive, to restore people. So in this short two-part series, we're trying to just simply inspire us and refocus us, each and every one of us, on being like Jesus, focused outside of ourselves on people, especially people who are hurting and outside of here, outcast, people who need healing and hope. And I think the reality of the need for this series is that in life, all of us tend to drift from the core of what it means to follow Jesus. And I think when we tend to drift from that, we tend to start making our faith into fire insurance, escape, escaping the bad things in life or heaven and hell, or, or we turn it into our own comfort, or we turn God too easily into a self-help God designed to make our lives easier, more peaceful, make us wealthier, live nearly problem-free. And so in John 20, Jesus actually calls us back from that drift in our faith to the primary focus and motivation for it. And we're going to look at that in verse 19 in a second. But, but in the context here, Jesus actually is appearing to his disciples after he resurrected. The text says Jesus' disciples were behind locked doors, fearful of the Jewish leaders, fearful that they would be arrested and crucified like Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 19 and, and read it there. It says, Jesus came... And stood among them and said, peace be with you. Big exclamation point there. If I were in that room with Jesus that day and Jesus appeared, I think I'd need that exclamatory peace be with you as well. I mean, if a man I thought was dead appeared to me in a room behind locked closed doors, I think I'd be struggling not to mess my pants, honestly, okay? I mean, I think we would need the calm down, right? The text continues in verse 20 and it says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Just imagine that picture, how tangibly God helps them calm down. God is so amazingly thoughtful and patient to what we need in those moments. And then Jesus says again, peace be with you. And I suspect the second peace be with you is to prepare the disciples for what Jesus is about to say. Peace, this, this, this word in, in, in Jesus' context that meant so much more than calmness. It means wholeness of life. It means living in the fullness of the good, the best, and the right things in life. And why do the disciples need that peace? It's because we drift from that goodness and fullness. And Jesus is about to tell them what their and what our number one focus in being a follower of Jesus needs to be about. And here it is. He says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. You. You see, to follow Jesus is to join him in being sent on God's mission to the world. 
I think many people who call themselves Christians in America today say about their faith, I will attend church, I'll read the Bible stories, I'll pray, I'll serve, I'll, I'll fellowship with other believers because I know I need to have great friendships in my life. I'll try to live most of the morality of the Bible so that I'm a good enough person and maybe even I'll tithe. Maybe I'll give 10% of my income to God's work if God provides enough, whatever we define as God providing enough. But, but share my faith in God and invite others personally to follow Jesus as I do, I think we easily fall into making a silent vow of saying, that's for professionals. That's, that's for people who are more extroverted, who like to talk and debate, people who are smarter theologically than I am. And we drift from this core of being sent ones like Jesus. And when we do that, we start becoming distracted in our life. We start focusing on material things, on staying busy. And we, we don't move through everything that we do in life, all the activities we do with this primary focus of mission, of being sent like Jesus. And when we do that, life on the surface for us may seem happy. It may seem good. But part of the reason we distract ourselves with activity and entertainment and things is because deep within us, there is, especially when we're quiet, we find ourselves experiencing varying levels of this gnawing dissatisfaction, this gnawing boredom or mundaneness with life. I think one of the most profound things I learned during college actually happened outside the classroom. I was a campus leader, and I was a meeting with another campus, a group of campus leaders, and one of the guys got up and was started to talk about uh, the record number of student, student suicide attempts that had happened on that campus that year. And he got up and he quoted Proverbs 29, the King James Version, verse 18, where it says this. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, other translations say where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no prophetic voice, meaning where there is no godly, passionate, present, and future-looking sense of mission and visionary focus for our lives, that people perish. Essentially, what it's saying is where people have no strong connection and involvement in the mission of God in their lives, they will perish. Now, that that word other perish, other translations translate it to cast off restraint or cast off discipline. We lose our passion. We lose the, the motivating focus of our life. And we tend to wander aimlessly. We We perish. There's passion and purpose in our life begins to die because we are no longer focused on something compelling enough to truly orient our entire life and fulfill our lives. And this campus leader put it even more simply, saying, you know, so many of the students we work with who attempt suicide, who struggle with addiction, who struggle with depression, who struggle with behavioral problems, when they are asked about the vision for their life, they have no answer. They have no answer. See, God knows we are wired for mission, for meaning, and for purpose. And so the primary focus of God as we follow Jesus is about being sent ones, about being sent on this grand mission, about this mission worth whatever cost we're willing to pay, this mission worth dying for, worth giving our all for. 
It's a mission to be sent like Jesus, to save as many people as possible in this life. But, but that can feel overwhelming, can't it? Just the thought of that. Who of us feels like we can live up to that mission? So Jesus actually goes on in the very next verse. He says, and basically says, I'm not leaving you alone in this. The text says these two really powerful statements next. And the first one is this in verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus says to live this mission, we do need something more than us. We need to receive the Holy Spirit, which means if we're going to be followers of Jesus as sent ones, we need to learn to prioritizing learning and knowing and understanding the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how the Holy Spirit wants to work those things that we feel are too big for us in being sent to be like Jesus, how he wants to work those things through us. See, Jesus is saying, no, you, you can't do this mission on your own. And yet Jesus wants us to enjoy living in the same impactful, inspiring power of the Holy Spirit that he lived in. And then Jesus goes on to say something I think is really amazing in focusing our mission. The very next verse, he says, If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And uh, we get that in a conceptual sense. We realize that our mission as followers of Jesus is to be agents of His forgiveness, demonstrating, like we talked about last week, such inclusive behavior, such graceful, such profound believing in other people that others experience the forgiveness and the grace and the patience of God through the way we treat and talk with them, even before they ask. Notice, the text doesn't say forgive only when they ask. It doesn't say that, does it? Jesus is asking us to be much more proactive than that. He essentially says, if you forgive, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they will not be forgiven. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you can pronounce forgiveness over people and they're automatically forgiven and go to heaven. It doesn't mean that you run through your life saying, Bob, you're forgiven and Bob's automatically right. It doesn't mean you can say, Kim Jong-un and Putin, you're forgiven and therefore they're forgiven without any kind of a response on their part. It's not, it's not, Jesus isn't saying that. That's not what he's saying. Jesus in this short phrase is condensing the goal of our entire mission and how we are to conduct ourselves in that mission into one Sentence, And this is what it means. As sent ones on the same mission as Jesus, we are to, like Jesus when he came, initiate offering forgiveness. We initiate pursuing people who don't think they can be forgiven, even before they ask, who don't think they need to be forgiven even, even before they ask. We initiate loving people as God loves them. We believe in people who have given up on believing in themselves because they're so despondent about their own sin and their failure that they feel like they can no longer hope for growth and change in areas of their lives. So we initiate showing patience and kindness and we stay committed to friendship with people even before they ask or they deserve it. 
And because, here's the key, because we initiate that grace and that forgiveness, we make the reality of forgiveness tangible to them in that moment. And therefore, they have the opportunity to receive that forgiveness. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a fun thought to think that we get to be a part of that? That is such great good news. And yet being on on mission with Jesus also requires risk. It requires the risk of pain. Because people often reject the good you offer. Years ago when I was still doing a lot of counseling, I, I sat with a number of married couples and they were going through difficult times and they were in pain and they were genuinely hurting. They were genuinely wanting to be loved and genuinely wanting their marriage to be healed and become the kind of love relationship they always dreamed it could be. That's the reason they were in counseling, right? But I can also tell you some of them did not accept the good news that was being offered to them in that moment. They chose to hold on to their bitterness and revenge rather than to forgive and release the other person from that. They chose to hold on to their self-justifying ways of communication and their patterns rather than learning to empathize and listen and put caring for the other person before their own needs in their communication habits. And even though they were being invited to things that were very good, things that have been time-tested in millions and millions of marriages... They rejected it and in some circumstances ended up in divorce. You see, we can offer forgiveness. We can believe in people. We can show kindness. We can offer friendship and support. We can give good, wise counsel. And we can invite people to follow our good God and and telling them how good He thinks of them. And it can be rejected. In fact, in some of those circumstances, people will not face their own stuff, won't take responsibility for their own stuff so much that even they'll blame you for the meltdown in their life, even though you were the one offering goodness and hope and a way out for them. See, sharing our faith, inviting people to grace and good, the grace and goodness of God to follow Jesus is risky. We risk argument. We risk being misrepresented. We risk even alienating relationships. We cannot be sent on this mission without risk. There is always risk. That's the reason Jesus says to his disciples the first time he sends them out. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. We talked about this last week. And he said, be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. In other words, be forewarned. Know the risk, know the danger. But Jesus says, I'm sending you out nonetheless. And and here's the reason he sends all of us out. It's because I'm only able to reach some people. Some people don't relate to me. In fact, some people don't like me. Go figure. Right? They need someone different than me to reach them. God has uniquely qualified you to reach people that I and other people can't reach as well. I've had a lot of times where business people have come to me me who are just really on fire in their faith and passionate about Jesus. And 
And they'll say to me, Ross, I, I love Jesus so much. I wish I could be in full-time vocational ministry. Then maybe my life would make a, a real difference instead of just you know, crunching numbers and writing code and making a sale. You know what I often say back? I say, I've often asked God, I've even begged God to allow me to leave vocational ministry and work in a place like you. You want to know why? It's because you get to be with people who are not following God. You have a natural opportunity every day to represent the grace and the kindness and share the love of Jesus with people who don't know Jesus. You see, my job keeps me around Christians so much that I struggle to find even some time to meaningfully rub shoulders with non-Christians. And I would love to have eight to ten hours a day where I, I would rub shoulders with unchurched people. I would love the opportunity to be in an environment where people might talk honestly about faith and life because they see me as being like them. Instead, when I'm around unchurched people, I too often get the religious look-good nonsense of people telling me how generous and good they are because they somehow see me as this holy man that represents God and they have to make themselves feel good about themselves in that conversation. I hate being treated like that. I hate having to knock myself off the pedestal just to have an honest conversation with people. But you get to have that opportunity every day. See, God wants to reach all people right where they're at, right where you are at. So he sends us all, every single one of us, into this eternally valuable mission for our lives. So what does it look like to be sent like Jesus? Practically, what does it look like? We're going to look at five things today. I'm sure there's more, but five is more than enough for today. Okay? So first one is, if we're going to sent to be like Jesus, we're sent to serve. Jesus concludes one of the longer sermons he does in the Gospels in Matthew 24 and 25 with one of the most famous inspiring parables. And it's set against the backdrop of the eternal realities. And Jesus says this, he says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was, you remember this, I was hungry. And you gave me something to drink. I was thirsty and you gave me something eat and drink. I got it all wrong there. But you got it. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then to summarize the next few verses, it's basically, and then the righteous will answer and they said, when did we do that? I don't remember doing that. In verse 40, it says, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. See, we've been having a lot of fun with this kind of sent-to-serve stuff lately here, haven't we? We've been doing a lot for hurricane relief. We've been kicking off the tutoring initiative, and we've been doing the warm quest to end poverty next week, and in a month or so we're sending a team to Belize on a mission trip. We're, we get this. We're doing this well, and I'm so proud of our church in this. In this text, Jesus highlights that there's even a more simple form of this, and that is extending just simply a welcoming hand to a stranger. That's part of being sent on his mission. I can't tell you how many newer people I hear here at Quest say the reason they stay is because of how all of you intentionally go out of your way to just shake their hand, to welcome them, to invite them to your groups, to welcome them into friendship or to serve with you. 
And over the years, we've had a number of people just simply because you shook their hand and made them feel welcome who have gotten baptized and decided to follow Jesus. Next week's going to be a great opportunity for us to do this again. Not only to give to those in need, but for each of you to come and make this a welcoming place for the guests that we'll have come here to cheer on the visiting runners, to make them feel like this is the best race they've ever been a part of because they get the most encouragement of any race they've ever been at. And then to hang around at the festival, even taking time to make the band and the food truck and the bounce house people feel glad they came. It's all about hospitality and being sent and welcoming and giving to those in need. It's a huge part of what it means to be sent to serve like Jesus. And thank you for doing that well. Being sent on mission also means being with Jesus and, and, and sent to invite people to join us. Let's take a little closer look at Luke 5, the passage we touched on last week. Jesus had just called Matthew to follow him, right? And remember, Matthew is considered this traitor, this, this sellout to the nation of Israel and to the, an apostate to the Jewish faith. So he chose to become a tax collector, a trade in which the way you actually made your money in that day was to use the power of your office to make people pay more than what they were required to do, essentially extorting them. And that's where you made your money as a tax collector. Matthew is hated He's considered the worst of sinners. And yet one day Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And for some reason, Matthew stands up, packs up shop, leaves it all behind, and he follows Jesus. Now now think about that for a moment. What does that mean for Matthew on a daily basis? In today's world, he left behind elite country club living. He left behind uh, being invited to all the important Roman political events as an honored guest. He left behind a standard of living that likely ranged in today's dollars from a hefty six-figure salary to maybe even a seven-figure income in today's dollars. To do what? To volunteer and follow a guy for three years who was, as of yet, relatively unknown giving up a job that he then now had basically no hope of ever getting back if he changed his mind. What was it about Jesus believing in Matthew that made him make such huge changes, right? I think it's the power of the gracious pursuing of someone, believing in them when no one else does, accepting them when no one else does. So Matthew, as he's walking with Jesus those first few hours after following him, I can imagine him thinking, what can I do to help this cause of Jesus? I, I, I can't preach. No one would listen to me, right? Besides, I don't know enough yet to be sure of what I'm saying. I've only been following this rabbi for a couple hours, so, so I need to leave that to Jesus for now until I learn more. And then it, then it hits him. And Matthew, who is also known by the name Levi, because they had Roman and Jewish and Aramaic names, decides what he can do is extend an invitation to all of his friends to come and meet Jesus and his disciples. And Luke 5 goes on to say this in verse 29. It says, Then Levi, Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them as we read last week, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. 
I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So just, just imagine. I know we dealt with it last week, but just imagine for a minute being at Matthew's party. All of the sinning, traitorous, immoral friends of Matthew were there eating and drinking and partying. Whatever, all, and all that that looks like. And Jesus and his disciples are mixing with them. And then walk up the religious leaders who crash the party, and, and at first they kind of show nonverbal disdain, I'm sure. They're probably still on the edges, you know, just kind of. And then they transition and they openly, verbally disdain them. How can Jesus, this holy, this, this religious teacher, supposed religious teacher, hang around people who are so vile? And you see, that disdain is nothing new to Matthew and his friends. They feel it. I mean, those, those, these guys, they feel it and hear it every time they walk past a true Jew on the street, right? But what's different? What's different in this moment? It's this drop, it's this drop this mic moment that Jesus has with the religious leaders. You see, it's, he says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's this holy man. Get this. Here's this holy man choosing to reject the disdain and instead choosing to offer hope and relationship and prioritize spending time with them. See, this is Matthew's part. This Matthew party environment had nothing to do with spiritual things. It was just people eating and drinking and hanging out, rubbing shoulders with, with Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus' presence and then this mic drop moment communicated an acceptance. It communicated a love for them as people right where they are at. As a church, we try to create these environments throughout the year that we can have this opportunity. The 5K again next week is one of them, creating an environment where people who have a concern for those in need can join us in meeting that need for the poor in our community. And the most important thing is that all of you, we get to rub shoulders with them in a way that might possibly allow them to get a different glimpse of who followers of Jesus are and the church. It happens through small groups like game nights. It happens through men's shooting events, through youth lock-ins, through the father-daughter princess ball and the children's ministry. And it can happen for you anytime you want. You can invite your five, the five people you are praying for who are not following God or, or disconnecting from God or their church in the rain that you're praying for right now. And you can invite them over for a movie night or a football game party anytime you want. And also invite some of your quest group friends as well to just come and join you and rub shoulders, no agenda, just have your unchurched friends experience a relationship with some of your church friends and just have a fun time and extend however God brings opportunity, God's grace in that moment. I mean, what would happen if every one of us quarterly or more would have a party for our non-Christian friends to just rub shoulders with our Christian friends? I mean, you can invite people to church as well, and we're going to give you a great opportunity in the next series that's coming up two weeks from now after the 5K. Uh, and I want you to invite your friends to either come in person or to listen online, and here's why. So this next series, what we're going to talk about, uh, we talked a little bit about this in the past, that there's this rapidly growing group of people in America that sociologists refer to as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not little old women wearing penguin outfits, right? They're called nuns because when they're asked about religious affiliation on a survey, they check the box, I have none, right? 
And the more the views of the nuns are studied, well, researchers are discovering that they're often not, actually not attracted to atheism, even though they say they have no religious affiliation. They've just rejected the Christian church for various reasons. And when those reasons are looked at more closely, what they are rejecting is rejecting versions of Christianity that, frankly, you and I should also reject because they're not true. And if you've ever known anyone who has departed from church, left church, I want you to invite them to consider joining us for this series. They're going to discover that we agree with them probably in a lot of their opinions, that, they ne- that they're actually shocked that we agree with them. And if they won't joy- join you for church, invite them to listen online and invite them to meet you for coffee and buy their coffee once a week just to sit and talk about the series with them. It's an opportunity to invite. This series is going to be valuable for you as well because I, I, I hear all too often, even among us, people saying some of these beliefs that the nuns have rejected the church over and that we should also reject. And so it's going to be a great opportunity to grow in your own faith. It's going to be a great opportunity to love and care for those around you who are left uh, struggling with their faith because they, they, they've rejected something. They don't have the answers they need. And, and parents, let me talk to you for just a moment. In particular, I want to talk to you. This series is going to be an opportunity for you to inoculate yourself and your children from common theological viruses that are causing people to leave faith and leave the church. So I really want to encourage you to pray and invite. We have plenty of opportunities to live this part of being sent like Jesus, to invite over the next couple of weeks. We are sent to be invitational. So being sent by Jesus also means being sent to tell a story. So think about that for a moment. What are the stories you tell in your life? Uh, you, when, your kids are, when you're around your kids, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews, or your, or your friends, what are the tor- stories you tell about yourself or about life? Uh, the reality is I think we love to tell stories of triumph, right? We love to tell fish stories. They kind of grow. And sports stories. And we love to tell stories of honors received, right? Whether it's a story about yourself or a family member or some, a friend, we love to tell stories of triumph. We also love to tell stories of coming through hard times, right? I've told my kids, I've told you many times stories of when I thought I was going to have to quit something because uh, that God called me to because of a lack of money and God provided. I've told the story over and over again of my dad's six heart attacks at age 32, the permanent heart damage. And even though my dad was a pastor at the time, he didn't really believe that that time of his life that much in miraculous healing. And yet God showed up and healed him of that heart damage confirmed by his doctors at Mayo Clinic. We love to tell stories of beauty, of joy, of fun times, of meaningful encounters with others. So how has God been any of those things in your life? And how can you tell those stories? See, because stories help others know what's important to us. Stories give people a glimpse into who we are. And when those stories also involve God, they give other people the opportunity to get a glimpse and an experience of who God is and an idea of who God could be for them as well. So what are your God stories? And how are you looking and praying for opportunities to share them regularly? See, being sent like Jesus also means being sent to make a case. If you are an avid sports fan, 
You can make a case for the Bengals, for the Steelers, for the Buckeyes, maybe even the Michigan team, and you can cheer for your, well, maybe not so much for your Browns. Can't quite make the case there, right? But, but you can debate the play call, and you can talk about the coaching and the players, and, and you know a lot about them. You talk freely about them. If you follow political parties or political issues or candidates, you, you, you generally have a well-reasoned position you're able to talk about on those subjects. See, being sent like Jesus to make a case means that we learn to know about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and how to talk well about that. But many of us fear we don't know enough, right, to do that well. Allow me to make just two observations on that. You don't need to know a lot to begin sharing the message of Christ. Just look at Matthew 10 where Jesus sends out his disciples. He gave them very simple instructions, one sentence basically, which basically said, I want you to go invite people to repent. In other words, I want you to help people be honest about the areas of their life that are not good, and I want you to help them turn to God, and I want you to invite them to consider that God can forgive them and, and follow him, if they follow him. And the disciples with only that knowledge... And that message went out and had a really powerful ministry. And sure, some people ask tough questions, but most faith discussion is simple. It's, it's sharing God's grace. It's sharing His love. It's affirming people that God has good plan for them. It's inviting them to believe that God thinks lovingly about them instead of judging towards them and is good if they will just turn to Him. And the second observation I want to give you on that is if you've been a follower of Jesus more than a few years and you still don't feel comfortable discussing moderately difficult faith and ultimate reality questions, there are plenty of great resources just even free out on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for Robbie Zacharias or Michael Ramsden or anything associated with those guys. Let's not continue to use the excuse that I don't know what to say because 10 minutes a day for three months listening to Robbie or Michael Ramsden or John Lennox or any number of his associates and you will be able to talk more intelligently and more graciously about difficult issues than 95% of the people on the planet about difficult issues of life and faith, about science and faith, about the problem of evil, what it means to follow Jesus, about sin and salvation and who Jesus is. Or you could join one of the small groups that are starting this week studying the movie Case for Christ and the accompanying book that goes with it based on the true life story of an award-winning atheist journalist who set out to prove Jesus was, was untrue and became a follower of Jesus in the process. You can join the men's group this Thursday. starts here at 8 p.m. Sorry, last week I said it started last week at 8 p.m., so I really apologize if you showed up at 8 p.m. and there was nobody here last week. That was my mistake. It's this week they start, and there's a women's group studying it Wednesdays at 6.30, both here in the building at Quest. See, if people are your primary passion and being on mission with God is what, lives, uh, what our lives are all about, then studying to be prepared to make a case for faith in Jesus even in the face of challenging questions, is something we can all do. Finally, being sent like Jesus is we are sent to make history. Now, think about history for a second. History in your life or history in general is made around and written around key memorable moments of change, right? So if you are sent like Jesus, then as Jesus and the Apostle Paul says, you can expect the Holy Spirit to do works through you through answered prayer. 
You can expect to receive spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. Words about people that you could only know if God told you. And then as you share those things with people, that person experiences God knows me. He loves me. He's real to me. And when you do that, you can expect to be part of history-making, memorable, pivotal moments in people's lives where, you, where those moments become the anchor points of their faith they look back to. You heard just the last few weeks Erica and Emily get up and talk to you and both share about how God has grown them in understanding how the Holy Spirit speaks in that way and works through prayer. Wendy's been listening recently to a guy named Sean Bolts share some of his stories. And, and, and of course, you're going to hear probably the most wow one. And I'm going to tell you the most wow one. So what, does this need to be this wow all the time in our lives? No. So let's not set it up. But let's just enjoy the story, okay? Uh, one of the more profound stories that happened with Sean in this was he, he was actually sitting one day at lunch with a guy who's a billionaire businessman and uh, who believed Jesus was a historic figure but didn't believe Jesus was God. And he, he questioned Sean. He said, how? how can you believe that God is real today and Jesus is real and who he says he is? And Sean didn't want to get into a deep theological debate with him at that point. So he just sat there while he was talking to him, kind of under his breath, praying, God, what do you want to do as I'm talking with this man? And as he continued, Sean began to see in his mind what, what, what was this 25 character number and letter combination thing. And it was clear enough that he could read it. And so he just sat and went, well, God, are you sure? is this something like from you or is this just something weird? So he decided to take the risk and say, maybe this is from God. So he actually said, so what do these numbers and letters mean? And he listed off these 25 characters and the guy's face went white with shock. And he responded saying to him, that's our passcode for the most private bank account number of my business. No one knows that except for me and my lawyer. Not even my wife knows that. And he gave his life to Christ. Why? Because God knew something intimately about his life that nobody else did. And God became real in that moment. That's what spiritual gifts can do when we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and receive them and do them. God becomes real. Or it may just be your colleague when they say, I've got cancer, I've got a problem, that you offer right then to pray for them and, and you give an opportunity for God to show up in that moment, whether it's healing or comfort or both or, or whatever in that moment. If you don't feel comfortable in praying for people or operating in spiritual gifts in that way, then join the School of Kingdom Ministry and prepare yourself and pursue it and grow in confidence and start practicing because you are sent like Jesus to make history in people's lives by allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you so that they walk away from that encounter and go, God knows my name. He knows me. And He's real to me. And those become anchor points in our lives about how much God loves us, how much God knows us. We are sent like Jesus. Now the reality is, everybody I've ever known who prays like that, who learns to operate in spiritual gifts like that, has many moments of disappointment where it's not right, it doesn't work, somebody doesn't get healed. Everybody I've known is like that. So the point is, are we willing to keep at it? Are we willing to just 
keep at it. Worship team, come on up. We're going to move towards a close. God made you and I just the way you and I are because there are people outside this building who you are best suited to bring the love and the grace of Christ to by inviting them to follow Jesus. You as a follower of Jesus have a mission. You, all of us, every single one of us are sent like Jesus to our world. I'm going to give a little bit more of a closing invitation and uh, to the actual message here, but we're going, to, we're going to receive communion. So if the communion people could come right now and just start getting ready. Uh, and let me just say this about communion. Anyone here who wants to follow Jesus or is a follower of Jesus can receive communion. Even if you're here and you aren't yet sure about following Jesus, but you really want to pursue Jesus and your heart cries, if he's real, I want him to be real, then I want you to come and receive communion. And as you do, and as you pray, when we ask you to pray about that in a moment, I want you to say to God as you, as you receive it, Jesus, if you are real, would you become as real to me as this? So the question today I want you to walk away with and think about this week. Who are you in relationship with at your work, in your community, in your neighborhood, in the groups that you belong to? And how is God allowing you in those moments this week, today maybe even some of those relationships, to be that sent one, to serve, to invite, to make a case for Christ, to share your faith, or to pray and allow the Holy Spirit to become very real in somebody's life today. Go in that power today. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.